Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Our first scripture reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 8. You'll find that on page uh, 988, I believe, in the Pew Bibles. So 988. Several weeks ago now, uh, I uh, began a series of sermons on New Year's resolutions. We looked at the resolutions that people so often make at the beginning of a new year. and We asked, what should we think of such resolutions as Christians? What place do such resolutions have in our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ? And the first thing that we saw as we began to look at such resolutions is that such resolutions are actually good and necessary in the life of a believer. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we must be resolved to walking in obedience to his commands. In fact, this is the very heart of repentance. We are turning from God or from sin to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. This is what it is to repent. This is the Christian life, to resolve to follow. Nothing says that such resolutions have to be made at the beginning of a new year, but certainly there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of the cycle of the seasons that God has given us uh, to renew our commitment to walking in obedience. But not only did we see that there's a place for such resolutions, even a necessity of such resolutions, we also saw that all the strength and the power that we need to keep such resolutions is ours in Christ. In Christ, by faith, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness, Peter says. In Christ, by faith, the immeasurable power of God is now at work in us. And so we saw that it is good to be resolved to obey and the power to keep such resolutions is ours in Christ. And so we came to a question. If this is true, if it's good to be resolved and if the strength to keep such resolves is ours in Christ, then why do we so often fail? Why do we so often fail to keep the resolutions that we make to live lives worthy of the gospel, worthy of the name of our Lord and Savior? And in seeking a biblical answer to that question, we discovered that at least one reason, maybe not the only reason, but one important reason that we fail to keep our resolutions is that we fail to use the power that God has made available to us. We, we fail to plug in, as it were, and we fail to plug in because we fail to use the means of grace that God has given us. God has given us certain means of grace, means by which His empowering grace flows into our lives. And we fail to use them. The, the means that He has given us are His Word and prayer. He has given us His Word, a living and active Word, a powerful Word, a Word that accomplishes its purpose, a Word that Peter tells us is both the seed of our new birth and the milk by which we grow up in our salvation. And He has given us Prayer, prayer that he tells us is powerful and effective. We do not have because we do not ask, James says. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Prayer accomplishes much. And so God has given us two powerful means, the, the, the Word of God and prayer to the Almighty God. And we fail to use them as we should, and therefore we fail to have the power that we should in the course 
of our daily lives. And recognizing this obviously raised a, another question in our minds. If, if this is true, if we, if we fail to have the power that we should because we fail to use the means that He has given us, then obviously what we need is to learn to use the means. To learn to use them more faithfully. And so we've been asking the question, how do we use the means that God has given us? And obviously we could come at that question in a number of different ways, but what we have decided to do, or at least what I've decided to do, is we have decided to look at the context within which we use the word and prayer. Last Sunday, we, we looked at corporate worship. We, we looked at what we're doing right here, right now. We looked at how we use the word and prayer when we gather together as his people on his day. And we saw that, you know, we corporate worship is really nothing more than the word wrapped in prayer. It is, it is the ministry of the word to God's corporate people surrounded by the prayers of his people. Even the hymns that we sing are really prayers to God, prayers of either praise or Petition, which surround the ministry of the word as we are fed as one body to grow up in our salvation. But we're going to see this morning that this is not the only place that we make use of the word in prayer. This is not the only place where we use the means. And this morning, we are going to talk about how we use the means not only when we are gathered together as a whole congregation, but even when we are divided up into smaller groups. I'm using the word, I'm going to try to use the word smaller groups on purpose this morning, rather than small groups, because small groups is sort of a buzzword in the church today, and, and people talk a lot about small groups, and that raises a lot of different things in a lot of different people's minds. They, they have sort of preconceived notions about what a small group program looks like. That's not what I'm talking about. I'll say more about that in a bit. But, but what I'm talking about is just the fact that when we do life, we're not always together. Sometimes we're in smaller groups. And while there is no verse in the Bible that mandates one particular small group program, there are all kinds of verses that talk about the fact that the word and prayer ought to be used in the context of shared life. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Is What does it mean to use the word and prayer as we do life together? And so before we look at our text this morning, I want to pray and ask for God's blessing upon our study. And then we'll look at three texts that I think highlight the ministry of the word in the context of shared life. And then we'll ask what we can learn from this about how we can use uh, the means of grace in smaller groups ourselves. So let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon our study this morning. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. And we pray that you would open our eyes to your truth this morning and that you would make that truth powerful, that you would use it to renew our minds and to transform our lives and to bring forth a harvest of righteousness for our good and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, our first scripture reading this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Hear this. This is the very word of God. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in our midst, uh, in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. 
Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And that is the reading of God's Word. I don't have time to unpack everything that is in these verses, but the context makes it clear that, that Paul is talking about his ministry of the Word among the Thessalonians. He says, listen, we proclaim to you the very words of God. In fact, he is going to thank God later in this letter that when Paul spoke to them, that he received their words, not as the mere words of men, but as they really are, as the very words of God. And he says that, that he did this and he was eager to do this and he was devoted to this. But I want you to notice in this text is the very last verse there. Verse 8. Because in the context of his, his talking about preaching the word, notice what he says. He says, our desire was to share with you not only the gospel, but our very selves. Paul understood that his ministry of the word needed to be in the context of personal relationship. He didn't just want to proclaim it. He, he also wanted to share his life with them. He, he wanted to open up his heart to them. This is language that he's going to use throughout the letter. And there was a context of shared life in Paul's ministry of the gospel. Let's look at this again in, in Acts chapter 20. Turn with me there. Again, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking about his, his own ministry. And he is saying what he has done and what he has been trying to do as he talks to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. Again, this is the very word of God. Now from Miletus, we sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Again, we could go on. There's much that we could talk about as he goes on to say that, you know, it was my desire to proclaim to you repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the goal of Paul's ministry. He, he proclaimed to them the whole counsel of God. But the little phrase I want you to notice this morning, the little phrase I want to I focus on is that phrase that he taught them both publicly and from house to house. There was the public teaching of the word, but, but Paul did not confine his ministry to that. He also went house to house, sharing meals, sharing life with these people, and ministering to the word to them in that context as well. All right? That's important. What context did Paul use for his ministry of the word? He, he proclaimed it publicly, but he also proclaimed it from house to house. And not only did Paul do this, we see it in his letter to the Thessalonians, we see it here in his speech to the Ephesian elders, but he envisions that this is the way it will work in the church. He expects 
that the word will be ministered if in the context of shared lives. We see this in his letter to the Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to begin at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. We read, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and, fro by the, to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, think of what Paul is describing here. There's way more than we can unpack in just a few minutes in these verses, but, but think of what he's describing. He says God has given his church apostles and, and, and prophets and, and teachers, pastors. And he says he has given to them for this purpose, that they might equip the saints. That's you. That he might equip the members of the church for the work of ministry. So who's doing the work of ministry? You are. You are doing the work of ministry. And what is the goal of that work? The goal of that work is that we would attain to maturity. We, we talk here a lot about our purpose is to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ. This is one of the places we get that language. Paul says the goal of the ministry of the church is that we would attain to maturity. And how does that happen? How do we grow out of childhood where we're tossed to and fro by every new teaching that we ever hear? How do we come to be uh, stand steadfast in the truth of the gospel? How does that happen? He says it happens as we speak the truth to one another in love. As we speak the truth into one another's lives in love, as we live in love with one another, as we share one another's lives and speak the truth to one another, we will grow up into maturity. And so, not only does Paul do this, not only does Paul speak the gospel in the context of shared life, but he expects us to do it as well. This is the design of Christ's church. And so the first thing that I want to do is we sort of reflect on what this teaches us about how smaller groups can function in our church and, and how we can use the means of grace in such contexts. The first thing I want to do is, is sort of drive home what I already said, but, but what I'm talking about when I'm talking about small groups. And I'm not necessarily talking about any particular program. All right? Churches do small groups in, in all kinds of different ways. They use all kinds of different names. There are discipleship groups and shepherding groups and growth groups and accountability groups and covenant groups and prayer groups. And just go to the bookstore. You'll find, you know, a thousand different names and a thousand different programs and different ways of, of doing them. Sometimes it's men and women's groups separate. Sometimes it's mixed groups. Sometimes it's stage of life groups. Sometimes it's intergenerational groups. There's a lot of different ways to do it. I'm not here trying to argue for any one of them. I don't have a particular model in mind. We do have small groups here, and obviously we think that's a pretty good way to do it. But even that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not even talking about our small groups. All right? what, I'm, what I'm talking about is simply this. 
is a smaller group of people. A smaller group of people who are living together, who are doing life together, who are sharing their time and their, and their energies with one another with the goal of helping one another grow towards maturity in Christ. That may be as part of a program, it may not. I think programs can be helpful. Don't, don't hear me saying that programs are bad. I think, I think programs can be helpful. Sometimes a program helps us do what we want to do, but we're a little too lazy to make happen. You know, a program can be good, but we're not talking about the program. We, we're talking about sharing life. Okay, we're talking about a smaller group of people sharing life, and not just sharing life around any old purpose, but sharing life around the purpose of helping one another grow towards maturity in Christ. And so, think about that. It's a, it's a smaller group. Why? Why a smaller group? Why is that necessary? Well, because we're finite creatures. You know, we, we, are, we are creatures with limited relational capacity. You know, the, the, the statistics suggest that whether you're in a church of a thousand or whether you're in a church of a hundred, you will know about the same number of people. You know, there's, a, there's a pastor out in, in California his name is Larry Osborne, and he wrote a, a book on small group ministry. And, and one of the things he says in his book on small group ministry that's always stuck with me is he says, people are like Legos. You ever seen a Lego? You know, it's got a certain number of little connector spots on the top. You know, and, and he says, we are like Legos. We have a certain number of connectors. Some people are the really long Legos. You know, and they got lots of connectors. They got 12, 12 connectors down each side. Others of us, like me, are like the little tiny Legos with, you know, four connectors total. But, but however, whether you're one of the really long Legos or whether you're one of the short Legos, you have a limited number of connector spots. You can't be best friends with everybody. You can't share life with everybody. You are a finite creature. And because you are a finite creature, you are going to have a finite circle. And that's why we need smaller groups. Even a church our size is too big for you to have a, 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 a small group type relationship with everybody. It, it can't happen. We, we are limited, so we need a smaller group. Now, what size that is, it varies. You know, for some it may be six or eight. For others it might be, you know, 20. But it's a smaller group. But it's a smaller group who are doing life together. You see, it's not just a smaller group who are all sort of gathered together for a purpose of, you know, sitting under a teacher. But it's, it's a smaller group that's connected to one another. When I was doing RUF, they used to talk to us. I said, you know, the first stage of your group is going to be that you're going to have relationships with people on campus. They said, and they may all come, and they may all sit in the same room, but their connection is going to be to you. He said, if you don't get them connected to one another, you're not going to accomplish your purposes. They have to, they're going to come because they're connected to you, but they have to then be connected to one another. Just coming and showing up and sharing space in the same room and listening to the same teacher doesn't connect us. We have to learn to do life together. It's a smaller group that's actually sharing life. It's a, it's a smaller group that is living together, breaking bread together. Spending time together, not just at prayer meetings, but watching games and, and um, just going out to eat. These are types of things that small groups do. So it's a smaller group of people who are doing life together. But again, they're doing life together with a purpose. They are committed. They are committed to helping one another grow towards maturity in Christ. They are committed towards that mutual edification. Towards speaking the truth in love into one another's lives. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the ministry of the Word and prayer and the life of believers requires us 
to be involved in such groups. You may be part of a program or not. Programs are helpful. But that's not what I'm talking about. You may be part of a program or not, but you better be connected to a group of fellow believers who, who are doing life together and who are committed to this goal of helping one another grow towards maturity in Christ. This is vital, I think, because such groups allow us to add certain benefits to our use of the ordinary means of grace. So what are those benefits? What, what do such groups add? What do such groups allow us to do that we can't do just in corporate worship or just on our own? Why do we need these smaller groups? Well, the first value, the first benefit of such groups is that smaller groups allow us to add wisdom to knowledge. Right? Smaller groups allow us to add wisdom to knowledge. We see the importance of wisdom in a number of Paul's prayers. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul, praying for the Colossians, says this. He says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Alright, so he's praying that they would know God's will, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, in our mind, in our, in our day, we think... Of that language as, uh, tell me what job to take or what to major in at school or, um, you know, who to marry. We're, we're thinking very particular. And Paul may have something of that in mind. That's not really what he's talking about here. More he's talking about, you know, God's general blueprint for how to live. That's God's will. You know, Paul says it later in his letters. He says, this is God's will for your life, that you be holy. That you obey the words that God has given you. That is God's will for your life. All right. So, so when he says a knowledge of God's will, he's talking about a knowledge of the word. The knowledge of the commandments that Jesus said disciples are supposed to obey. And so Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. But he doesn't stop there. Notice, he goes on. And he says, my prayer for you is that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because when you add wisdom to knowledge, then, verse 10, you will be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to Him. Wisdom must be added to knowledge so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We see the same thing in other prayers. I don't really have time to to go to all of them this morning, but you can look at Paul's prayers and he, he does this a lot. He talks about the knowledge of His will accompanied by wisdom allowing us to live the lives we've been called to live. So what is this wisdom that we need? What is this wisdom that must be added to knowledge? It is simply this. Wisdom is skill. It is skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom, the Old Testament word for wisdom, is the same word that's used for artistic or musical skill. It's, a, it's an ability. It's the ability to do something. And what it's the ability to do is it's the ability to take God's will, to take God's law, to take His instructions for life, and to apply them through your particular situation. That's wisdom. It's that, that ability to transfer knowledge to particulars. And you need that. If you're going to live the Christian life, think about it. You, you've been in situations where you've needed this kind of wisdom. And just this week, I had a conversation with a member of this, this, congreg- uh, this congregation who was, who was struggling with a wisdom question. They knew God's word. They, they knew what God's word required of them. But they were in a, a tricky situation. They were trying to figure out like, exactly how does this apply and I loved the fact that they were wrestling with the question. That was great. I didn't have any great answers for them, but we wrestled with it together. 
We said, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can figure this out. How exactly does this apply? And that's a profitable exercise. We, we were wrestling together to try to figure out, okay, how exactly does it apply here? You've been in that situation where you know what God's Word says, but you're not exactly sure what obedience is going to look like. Imagine you've, you've got a friend who's engaged in a homosexual relationship. What does it look like to love them well? What does it look like? Maybe you've got a nephew who's sleeping with his girlfriend. What does it look like to love him well? Maybe you've got a, a neighbor or a coworker who just simply will not live at peace with you. They are, they are constantly trying to, to start a fight. They will not live at peace. Paul says as much as it depends on you live at peace, well, this person will not. How do you respond when they just simply will not live at peace? Maybe there's an irresponsible person who, who you have some connection to who, who wants you to bail them out of their own mess again and again and again. They make poor choices. The choices come raining down on their head and they want you to bail them out. How do you love such a person? Those are wisdom questions. Those are difficult questions because we're pretty clear about what God's Word says. God's Word says, love your neighbor as yourself. Put their interests before your own. Do not return evil for evil. Okay? How? In my particular situation, how do I do that? That's wisdom. And what I want to suggest to you is that small groups are the best way of wrestling towards wisdom, of adding wisdom to knowledge. Because in a small group, you get to voice your particulars. You know, I'm the only one who gets to talk when I'm doing this. You know, I, I know what your situations are, and I, and I try to address them to a certain degree. But it's when you get together, you say, well, yeah, I'm in this situation. What does that look like? And, and you get the benefit of, of a lot of other Christians who are wrestling towards the same goal around you saying, well, let's think about that. Let's think about that. What might that look like? And you get to ask your questions. But not only do you get to ask your questions and, and give specifics, but you get to share the, the wisdom the Holy Spirit has given you and you get to wrestle towards solutions. You get to add wisdom to knowledge. That's what small groups do. A second benefit of small groups is that they get to, we get to add coaching to directing. Similar to wisdom, but, but, but slightly different. You know, modern learning theory. You can take it or leave it, but what it suggests to us you know, is that if you go from directing people to delegating to people, you will come up with what they call disillusioned learners. That's just a fancy word for frustrated people. All right? You know, this is people who have been told what they're supposed to do and then sent out to do it, and they stub their toe three seconds in, and now they're frustrated. I can't quite figure it out. I've had this experience multiple times in my life where, where someone tells me, okay, do this. I said, okay. Then you go to do it. You know, it doesn't make sense. Suddenly, once you're in the actual act of trying to do what they told you to do, you realize there's questions you have that you didn't even know to ask before. And, and now you're frustrated because there's no one to help. You've already, been, you've already got your directions, and, and now you've been delegated, and, and now you're frustrated. I had this experience when I was learning how to Play racquetball. When I moved here, Steve introduced me to racquetball. And I'm very thankful that he did. I love to play racquetball. Uh, but I had no idea how to play racquetball. And so, me being me, what I did is I went to the Internet. And I downloaded pages and pages and pages of instructions on how to play racquetball. From the William & Mary website, if you want to learn. All right? And my wife laughs at me and all this. But I read those pages. And I, and I read, okay, well, how do you do this? And how do you do that? And when do you do this? And when do you do that? And it was helpful to a degree. It was helpful to a degree. It's, it's good, but I'm telling you, I didn't even know what questions I had until I got out on the court and started trying to do it. And I'm like, oh, that didn't work. And then for Christmas, Sarah gave me some lessons with a racquetball pro down in Chattanooga. 
And suddenly he could come and he could be there and he could watch what I was doing. He would laugh and say, no, that's not what that means. You know, don't, you, you're not supposed to be trying to do it that way. And he could show me and he could demonstrate. He could watch and he could demonstrate and he could, he could walk me through it. And then he could let me do it again and, and again, take me through it. And he was just there in the process. And smaller groups allow us to do that. It puts more mature with less mature and, and people who can watch us and be, come alongside us and show us and demonstrate and coach. It allows us to do life together so that we can figure this thing out as we go. Small groups allow us to do that. It allows us to add coaching. And you know, Paul did this. Paul talks about this in his ministry all the time. He, he talks about the fact that, that he sets an example for others. He says, you know what kind of life I lived among you. You know how I conducted myself. Now imitate me even as I imitate Christ. He was a coach. He, he not only taught, but he demonstrated. He set an example. And he told Timothy to do the same thing. Think about it. He didn't just tell Timothy to be careful about what he taught. He told him to be careful about how he lived. He said, watch not only your doctrine, but your life closely. He said, do not let anyone look down on you for your youth. I know young people, a lot of times they like to grab onto that verse and they're like, no one should look down on me because I'm, I'm youth. But that's not really what Paul means when he says that. What he means is, don't act like a foolish child so that someone will have a reason to look down on you. <laughs> He's not saying like age is no reason to look down on you. He's saying, don't act like a foolish kid so that people will look down on you. Give people no reason. Watch not only your doctrine, watch not only what you teach, but also how you live. Watch how you live. Be a coach. Be an example. Third, small groups allow us to add accountability to exhortation. So they allow us to add wisdom. They allow us to add coaching. And they allow us to add accountability. We are to be an accountable group. You know, when someone sins against you, Jesus says you have a responsibility to go to them. When you sin against somebody, Jesus says you have a responsibility to go to them. You are always to be in relationship. You are always to be holding one another accountable. But accountability is not only for, you know, when you've sinned. It's also to help you stay right. Runner's World magazine will, will tell you that if you want to go from couch to 5K, that's kind of a, a buzzword among runners. If you want to become a beginning runner, if you want to go from sitting on the couch to running a 5K, one of the best things that you can do is join a running group. Not because they're going to coach you necessarily, but just because they're going to hold you accountable. You know, you plan to run together, they're going to say, hey, you know, where, where were you? A group that's accountable, a group that, that cares, a group that's helping you work towards the same end. That is a huge part of this Christian life. That's why Paul compares the running the Christian life to, to running a race. The same types of principles apply. And small groups allow us to have accountability because they allow us to really know what's going on and to, to ask questions and say, well, you know, you, you talked about that struggle at work. How's that coming? You know, the reality is, that if you ask somebody in a large group setting how they're doing, they're probably going to say, fine. And that's not wrong. It takes relationship to earn the right to expect a real answer to that question. You don't have the right just to go up to just anybody and say, well, how are you doing? And really demand that they get personal with you. You know, you don't have that right. You have to spend time with them. You have to, to create a relationship with them. Then you can ask. Then you can hold one another accountable. Then you can sharpen iron as iron sharpens iron the way that the Scriptures talk about. But it takes relationship. And then finally, small groups allow us 
to add passion to our prayers. Not only helps our ministry of the word as we seek to um, as we seek to add wisdom to our knowledge, as we seek to add coaching uh, to our instruction, and as we seek to add accountability, but it also allows us to add passion as we pray for one another. Because the truth is, you pray for the things that are personal. You pray most passionately for the things that are, that are personal. It's one thing to pray for the sick in some general ways. It's, it's another thing to pray for your spouse or your mother or your, your nana and, and, and say, Lord, please. Small groups allow us to add passion because they allow us to share our lives in such a way that we know one another and, and love one another. So small groups, whether it's part of a program or whether it's just you being in relationship with other people, but in an intentional relationship, they allow us to, to use the means of grace in ways that we cannot otherwise. We must not only hear the preaching of the word publicly, but we must hear it house to house. We must not only hear it with power, but we must hear it in the context of shared life. And so the final question is, well, how do we, how do we get into such a group and how do we, do we use such a, a group? You know, quickly, the, as I've said all along, the, the shape of the group is going to be different. Some of you are going to be part of a program. Others of you are not. But one way or the other, you, you better be in a group with other believers. You better be sharing life with other believers who will help you work towards maturity in Christ. But if you're going to benefit from such a group, if you're going to benefit from, a certain, from such a relationship, there are certain things that you must have, that you must commit to. First, you must commit both to time and purpose. Time and intentionality. You, you must spend time together. We're in a culture that likes to talk about quality time versus quantity time. Have you heard that? Yeah, for the most part, it's not true. Yes, you want your time to be quality. That's true. You don't want to just sit on the couch next to each other and never talk. That's, that's true. But you don't really get quality time if you don't spend quantity time. It's time plus time. It's shared life. And even sometimes those, those seemingly insignificant experiences matter in welding two lives together. You must spend time together. Not just an hour on Sunday, but you must see each other other times as well. You, you must commit to, to having your lives intersect. And that requires a commitment because it won't just happen. Your schedules will fill up. And if you don't commit to sharing life, you won't. But not only must you commit to sharing life, you must also commit to sharing life on purpose. Sharing life with the goal of helping one another grow. That doesn't mean every time you get together it has to be a Bible study. You know, sometimes you're just going to get together to, to eat a meal or to watch the game. That's okay. That's good even. But overall, the general direction must be that you are desiring to live a life worthy of the Lord and you want to help one another towards that end. So you must have time and you must have intentionality. And when you spend time together, you must be both honest and trustworthy. First, you must be honest. You, you must be willing to actually speak the truth of who you are and where you are and what questions you have and what doubts you're wrestling with. You must be willing to be honest. You don't have to you know, be transparent with everybody in the congregation in the halls of the church. That's not real. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that either. You know? So that's not what we're talking about. But there better be some people in your life, a smaller group of people with whom you are honest, with whom you speak openly and honestly, and you better be trustworthy so that they can be honest too. So they can share. So, so you have to have time. You have to have intention. You have to have honesty and trustworthiness. And finally, you must be absolutely committed to both the truth and love. 
It's not either or. It has to be both. You, you must be committed to loving one another. You must be committed to, to building one another up, to, to serving the other's good. That has to be absolute, non-negotiable. But we live in a culture today that says love will ignore certain things. Love will overlook certain things. Well, love will accept certain things. No, it won't. Love desires the good. Love won't let a friend you know, consume arsenic. Love won't let the friend you know, plunge headlong into death. And so we call one another to account and we speak the truth to one another. Truth, not our opinions about the best way to do life, but the truth of God's Word about how life works. And that's a challenge. It is a challenge sometimes to, to separate our opinions and, and our, our preferences from, from the Word of God. We, we sometimes conflate the two. But we must learn to separate them and we must learn to stand with absolute commitment on the Word of God and say, this is what God's Word says. What you're doing is not in accord with the truth. Or when they're struggling, remind them, God says this is true. I know you don't see it right now. You've got to walk by faith and not by sight. This is the way God's Word is. God's world is designed. This is what God's Word says. Hold on to the truth. Because when we have these commitments in the context of shared life, what we know is that we will grow. You see, God's Word is powerful. Prayer is effective. And we can use those means in corporate worship and we can use those means in smaller group. And well, next week we'll see we can use those, Greek, those in our own private devotions. That's next week. We can use them in all three of those ways. And when we use them, they will work. Paul tells us, he who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. And so that's the hope is that if we commit if we commit to using the means of grace that He has given us in the context of corporate worship, in the context of smaller groups, and in our own private devotion before Him, then we will reap the benefits. We will reap a harvest of righteousness. We will be transformed because His Word is powerful. And the one who gave us His Word will be faithful to use it in the lives of those who feed and feast upon His spiritual milk with faith. You will drink deeply of the spiritual milk of the word. If you will pray with faith, he will transform. That is his promise. And because he promises to do that for us, that is why we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Pray with me. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the means of grace that you have given us. We thank you for the different contexts within which we can use those means. And Father, I pray that you would be at work into, in us to will and to do that which is according to your good pleasure. And that we would begin with the regular use of the means of grace, that we might be empowered to walk in the footsteps of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.